Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. I'm just so thrilled, one, to be able to speak. I love sharing. That's why I became a teacher, I think. And two, it's great to be here on the first Saturday we get to be together after this crazy pandemic. So it's, it's a celebration of that. It's a remembrance of how much I have missed church. I know a couple weeks ago when we did the drive-in, I was helping out. I'm like, oh my goodness, I miss this. <laughs> so thank you for being here, for being here in person as we get readjusted again. It was weird not wearing a mask. I, I had one in my pocket just in case I was kidding myself. So a bit about me, and my name is Kevin. I used to be so active and involved here, and then I moved to Vancouver. So I've been away for the last five years, and I'm here to share today just in time to move in August up to Williams Lake. <laughs> so I'm glad I get to be here non-pandemic style for the couple weeks that we have. Um, while I was in Vancouver is when I did my training to become a teacher, where I did more theological training to do a master's degree. Where that's a lot where this is stemming from today. So before we begin, before I have a moment to share, I'd like to also pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that we're here, you're here, and that we have your presence among us. I ask that you be with me as I speak, that these words be yours, that this isn't about me. I ask a blessing on this community, on this church, and on your wonderful leader, Pastor Abraham, as he continues to do your work. We thank you for all we have. We thank you for our health, for our safety, and for your loving grace. Amen. One of the, the joys of the, program, the master's program I'm currently finishing up is my program director is a Jewish rabbi. I've, I've been studying indigenous and interreligious studies, so a lot of my coursework has been supervised and taught by a legit rabbi, and I just find it so cool to be like, yeah, I have a rabbi. <laughs> so the emphasis, the Jewish emphasis when we studied the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was really eye-opening and really, really wonderful to experience because growing up a Christian, I kind of was like, yeah, I know the stories. But to re-envision them, to understand them in a new way, and to have a rabbi lead when she literally would post the Hebrew and read us the Hebrew, and it's just like, wow, that, the whole experience changed not only my love of the Old Testament, but of the New Testament. Often we kind of push the Old Testament aside. We're like, yeah, those are great, but you know, we have all these new writings. We're Christians, after all. I mean, we even have some Bibles. I think they're called the Gideon Bibles that just have the New Testament and Psalms. And I think in those moments, we lose so much, especially for what Jesus said. He grew up in Jewish culture. He was seen as a Jewish rabbi, and he reinterpreted the Old Testament in so many new ways. In fact, the joke with many Jewish rabbis is the, Old Test- I mean, the New Testament is the biggest copyright infringement in the history of the world. Because <laughs> they're like, yeah, no, we already said that. He- he's saying what we said. And so it's a connection between, some people now even call it the First and Second Testament, trying to reconnect the two in a more deep and meaningful way. And that is where I have found so much more insight into the parables and Tadija's teachings. So the parable I really would like to go into today is the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
and realizing what Jesus was building off of through this Jewish context really just blew my mind and changed the way I live and operate and, and interacted with others. So we find this parable in Matthew chapter 18. I was told to pause and wait. There it is. Thank you. But we're going to read this with today's current monetary values. So instead of, you know, bags of gold and what is usually written, um, I was able, with the work, help of another pastor, convert this into the daily lived wages of BC residents. I think we got our numbers from 2014. But so when we read this passage, it's going to be in our Canadian BC way of life. You ready for this? So, and then also taking into account some of the Greek. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to sell accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him more than $9.8 billion was brought to him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered him and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold so he could repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay everything back. The servant master looked with him in pity, canceled the debt, and let him go. But then when the servant went out, he found his fellow servant, who owed him $16,415. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. But he refused. Instead of he went off and had the man thrown into prison so he could pay his debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called in the servant. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father treats each one of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 9.8 billion. How many of us owe that? <laughs> and just to bring the point even further, the Jewish historian Josephus recorded that in 4 BC, the total taxes collected in the region of Judea, Edom, Samaria, only totaled 5.9 million. So this is an absolute ridiculous number. We're kind of used to the debt being the trillions in today's age, but imagine personally owning, owing 5.9 billion and then having it forgiven. Makes my student debt look very small. <laughs> and I wish that the same thing would happen to me. <laughs> Just forgiven. <laughs> so this is the story that Jesus was telling. But the, the stories came out of response. I have a professor that often like to say, like to said, Truth sometimes is too big and needs a story. So the question comes, this story of forgiving 9.8 of billion opposed to 16,000, where, where was it coming from? What was, what was it trying to seek? This comes at the beginning when Peter asked that famous question, how many times should I forgive? Seven? Because in the time, Three was kind of, you know, you should, you should go for at least three. Past that, well, that's their fault, and you've done the best you could. So Peter offering seven was like, look at me. I'm doubling it in a little bit. And I've heard sermons talk about the speciality of seven and all these things, and I don't think that's quite the point. It comes in, in Jesus' response, which we often have heard. Not seven times, I tell you, 
but 70 times 7. Or some translations have it as 77. And the, the, the view that this unlocked, the reality that I became, to, became aware of, was because this quote, 70 times 7, is directly connected to the Old Testament. I'd always thought, you know, seven's a special number, maybe there's some mysticness about it, and perhaps. But the depth of it, what changed my life, was coming to realize, you know, this quote, this 77, is exactly from Genesis chapter 4. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 4 and try and figure out what is Jesus citing and why? The story up to this point with Cain and Abel. We understand them as the, you know, the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain killed his brother Abel. And then after that story, we get this little blurb, this little off-putting weird thing, and then the story jumps back to Adam and Eve. Cain, after he killed his brother, went on, found a wife somehow, we don't know where, and had kids and descendants. And one of these descendants was named Lamech. And in chapter 23, we have this, this pronouncement of Lamech. He says to his wives, Ada, Zelia, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 70 times seven. So here we have Jesus quoting this descendant of Cain. And Cain's descendant, Lamech, he does not regret killing this person. Some commentators think he might regret the retribution that's coming. And it being a young man, it kind of hints that you know, something's going to happen. In fact, Lamech goes on to say he seeks additional violence. He's, he's looking for a fight. And then by referencing Cain at the end of it, he's attempting to mock God. As if he could exceed God's punishment. As if he was grandiose in how he dealt with people beyond God. So why on earth would Jesus be citing this? What was it about this moment, this ultimate curse, this ultimate view that eventually led to God having the flood story? Lamech showcased the worst of humanity in this simple statement that, yes, I enjoyed killing this person, and I'm going to be worse, and I can outdo God when it comes to killing people and destroying things. You can even go into the depth of his wives' names and how they hint that he was a terrible person to his wife. And so why, in the realm of forgiveness, is, Joe, is Jesus citing this personification of pre-flood humanity? And that is where I just was like completely baffled. Because this is a moment of Jesus inverting evil for good. My favorite philosopher is this 19th-century Dutch man named Soren Kierkegaard, and he calls it a process of inversion. So by understanding the worst, we understand the call of grace. By turning evil, by turning these acts of evil into a measuring stick, by saying as much as you can be evil, as much as you can commit these atrocities, that is your measuring stick for how much you are called to be gracious and to forgive. All of a sudden, in one simple statement Jesus makes, he com completely flips the worst we have to offer as sinful humans into a tool 
of saying, yes, the worst you can do, that is how well you should forgive. It leaves you saying that, oh, evil, such a tool. But what does that mean? These are fancy, lovely words, but when we, when we come down to think about it, when we, when we start bringing up examples of the rapists, the murderers, the child abusers, we have right now our national issue of residential schools. That worst that we have seen, that evil we have known, now is how much we are to forgive. That's a big statement. So I looked at myself and like, well, what is the worst I have done? What is the worst that has been done through humanity's history? And we can pull up many, many examples. I'm a history teacher. I not only know these examples, I teach these examples. And it's like, that is the call, that is the benchmark of how I need to forgive and to see those around me. Whoa. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. And this creates a vision of hope among the reality of sin. This process of version doesn't lessen the pain, doesn't erase the memories, but it gives us an outlook, an emotional response. And as Pastor Abraham said a few weeks ago, I really liked it. it, it dignifies our suffering. It gives us a hope, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel of where we need to head, of how we need to be. It doesn't say there's a timeline. It doesn't say, you know, you should do this the next day. It may take years. But that's the orientation of forgiveness. So I remember when I finally, when I learned about this, when I made this connection, I'm like, okay, I gotta start practicing this. <laughs> and it changed me. I, at the time, I was a manager at a warehouse. I had an Irish boss that loved to swear and yell at me. I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do that to the guys that work for me because I gotta be gracious. As much as my Irish boss swears at me, I'm gonna be just as nice to the guys under me. And being Irish, he swore a lot. So it was really hard, but I, it changed. And then, and then the moment came where it, it became real. Because we can say words, we can say theories. And I wanted a, a bench so I can tell you a story about a pretty girl. So I met this girl, very pretty. She was beautiful, elegant, just incredibly full of life. And I did what any boy would do. I asked her out. And we dated... And I just grew in admiration of this, this wonderful woman I got to know who just completely kicked butt at life. She was elegant, yet worked in a mechanic shop. She, she could come home in uh, overalls, yet she sung opera and painted. She had this way of being the best of so many things. So, of course, I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. So we got married, and you know, when they, when they often say you get to marry your best friend, I was like, yes, I get that. And she was a really good cook, that always helps. <laughs> but it was just this amazing person that I got to come to know, and we grew together, we had our fun together. And I was at university during this time, finishing up my degree, and we you know, we, we had things going, we had our really nice basement suite, we had wonderful landlords, I was in classes I loved, she was kicking butt at her job, fixing cars, not much could stop us. 
And then there's that change. Often, I've heard about it, something tweaks, something different, something comes up. And all of a sudden, this distance came between the two of us. So it's like, okay, well, you know, we change, we grow. And I, so I tried, tried to bridge the difference, and nothing was working. Okay, well, we should go to counseling. No, 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 she didn't think that was needed. And over the course of five months, I saw this beautiful person that I fell in love with, that I was still in love with, fade into a roommate. The conversations became more sharp and angered, and all of a sudden I was like, I'm, I'm living hell. I'm, I'm living in a, with a person that doesn't like me anymore, and I don't know how to relate, I don't know how to connect anymore. I was helpless in the conversations. The sharp words, the anger, I had no clue what was going on. I'd never been here before. So I tried, but then she moved out into her parents, so only saw her once a week. Kind of saw the evidence of her existence when she came when I was at work. And I'm just like, how, how do you go from the best person in your life to wondering who she was anymore? And, and I had this strange feeling for a while. And it's I was like, no, no, it can't be. But I had this strange feeling, so I, I went onto Facebook, and I found the messages between her and a coworker. Two and a half months this had been going on. Now I know why she moved out to her parents. And I remember reading it, and I couldn't breathe. I was choked up. I fell on the floor. The pain was that worse than any surgery, any injury. I was like, what happened? So, once I regained my awareness an hour later, I moved my stuff out. I was just, I didn't know what to do. I worked at a warehouse, so I had a place to put my stuff. I stayed at a friend's house that night. Um, the next day, we, I kind of had texted her about it, and so the next day we met at Subway. I hadn't eaten until that point. So we met at Subway, and she came in in quite a huff. I'm like, wait, aren't I the one supposed to be mad? <laughs> and so we talked, and before she had been there, I, I prayed, like, God, give me that peace, that peace that passes understanding that the newsboys always sung about. <laughs> and somehow it was there. So she came, and we talked, and she reiterated how much she hated me. She didn't want to see my face. She didn't want to have kids with me. I'm like, well, that's kind of out of the conversation at the moment, I would think. And somehow, I was able to, to say, I don't know how, I was like, but you're still my wife. We can make it through this. I don't know, and then we went off on a tangent. And I'm like, no, no, you're, I said this a second time, you're still my wife. We can make it through this. And at that point, she began to cry a little, but then her mom called. Very big point of disconnect between the two of us. She snapped right out of it. And then she demanded a divorce. We, we met the week following, split up our stuff, and that's the last I ever saw her face to face. We got married on July 1st, 
and we separated a year and a week after that. But this call of maximum grace was in the back of my head. I'm like, crap, how? <laughs> like, no, that's the worst somebody can do is the benchmark of forgiveness. Shoot, I have a long way to go. And it was a long way. Divorced as a 20-something-year-old in a context of an unfaithful spouse is something I do not wish on anybody. And I, I had had practice with these emotions. My father passed away when I was in grade, 10, grade 11. And so I knew it was coming. And I knew, but even then, the, the, the mountain, the, the, the depths, the, the craziness was unprepared no matter what experience I've had before. But that call to forgiveness rang and kept there. I'm like, okay, I'll get there, I think. And ironically, seven months later, I was able to write a letter of forgiveness. Usually I can write a letter, I mean, a, a page in about half an hour when I'm writing an essay. That half a page took me two hours to write. So I'm like, no, this, this, is, this is where I'm called to be. This is who I'm called to become like. So 9.8 billion seems a lot easier to forgive, doesn't it? <laughs> so I sent it. I haven't, I've never heard back. Forgiveness can go unanswered. That was another tough lesson. But then the accord that Pastor Abraham spoke of dignity and suffering, because that was the, there was that moment, but then the waves, the isolation, the loneliness. I lost friends because I was broken. People didn't know how to handle divorce, Kevin, even though they knew me before. So these waves of suffering that came, that took years to get through. Part of the reason I moved back last year was to be with family, to be in the Sunny Okanagan, to be where I grew up, living in a basement suite by yourself while trying to finish your last year of university, really gets to you. But that call remains, and that call is what I aim for. So when I talk about forgiveness, I don't want to gloss over it. I don't want to be like, oh yes, forgive and forget. I will never forget. But because I walked through it, because my aim was forgiveness, maximum grace, I no longer have that anger. I no longer resent. I'm freed. And grace frees you to see God's work, to see the influence, to see the journey. Because yes, I had the blind hate parts, very much went through that phase. <laughs> but then to go through that, to go past that, to be Kevin again with a story, that is what becomes of this grace. That is the power and the version Curtin Gorg speaks to. To turn the story into something useful, into something good, like now sharing it. But it is not easy. And I've worked with many kids who, well, I said I was sorry. Yes, but now there's restorations. There's, there's a life-altering moment. There's emotional scars. 
There is a new way of seeing and being that comes after it. We collectively understand this as a pandemic. You know, we are post-pandemic society. There's a change. But when we don't forgive and understand that change, when we don't understand that adaptation, we don't understand that there's a new way of seeing, we can get really caught up, we can get really blocked, and it will weigh us down. And I say this not because I am some perfect person, I have it all figured out. I'm saying this because I realized what has changed the way I interact with the youth I work with, with the people I interact with, with the employees I had underneath me. But I also realized, and I also lived, in a new way of understanding church. See, I couldn't have done this by myself. I, I didn't turn to alcohol, I didn't turn to smoking, I didn't turn to drugs, though I understand the allure of them now because I had a church community that was there for me. Because I had workers who became family. Because I had an atheist manager who told me, yeah, go home, but come back. You have a church and you have a school to finish. I'm like, well, if an atheist manager is telling me to stay in church, I think that's a reason to stay. And it's, I had a mentor. I had a, um, a lady who, who went through a similar thing, and her husband took me in, and we could talk about our stories. We can share our experiences. I even taught a practicum under her for my teaching degree. And I remember one time just freaking out, and it was 12.30 at night. I'm like, oh my goodness, I just can't handle this day, all these things. So I texted her. I'm like, I just need something. And she, te- she replied within 30 seconds. Yeah, I've been there. I know. And then the peace that just came over me that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't some enigma, some oddity, that this was okay. And I slept for the first time that week very well. And I just, that is what you can, when we draw out of grace, we have to realize that some of these calls are bigger than us. I personally do not like the statement, God, does, does, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, because then why would you need church? Why would you need him? Why would you need anything? You can just handle it. This experience of going through this divorce, of going through these emotions, I could not handle on my own. That's why people have vices. That's why people turn to means. But thankfully, because of my situation, of the community I was in, of the people I worked with, I didn't have to fall into that. So this call to grace, this call to maximum grace, yes, it starts here, and like a flashlight that starts inside that comes out to be seen, it still requires a community of support. It still requires us sharing our stories. It still requires us being there. And that was a tricky thing, because apparently divorced people, not many people know how to handle it. And I, and I know people tried to do their best. I had one guy, I was kind of, I kind of shared where I was at, because I was pretty low, and he's like, yeah, I had a girlfriend cheat on me once. I'm like, okay, I see what you're trying to do, <laughs> but it's not the same level, man. <laughs> and when we support others, we don't have to fix. We just have to be. I had a conversation with my, my best friends, and he's like, dude, I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how to help. I'm like, Josh, just hang out. Remind me that I'm normal. He's like, oh, well, I can do that. I'm like, that's all I need. <laughs> Remind me that I'm still somebody and not this title overhanging me. So when we carry each other's burdens, when we engage in this way, we don't have to problem solve. We have to listen and understand. 
We have to be open to the messiness. Because I will tell you, I was an emotional wreck for two and a half, three years. Maybe a little awkward around people, I don't know. (laughs) But I certainly did not have my stuff together. I certainly was struggling. Some people saw that and walked away. Others kind of like, okay, we don't know how to deal with this. Well, just talk to me. The return to normalcy, the return to being somebody that doesn't have this as part of their title, as part of something overhanging, as something that I felt like I wore on my shirt all the time. But when we allow our stories to be turned into tools of forgiveness, of measuring sticks, not only do we see people in a new way, interacting with people in a way, but we realize that church functions in this way. That children's song, you know, lay your sorrows feet of Jesus. You know, we have these moments, we have these iterations that call for this. But in Canadian society, we, we don't always have depth because we don't need to. We have it pretty good. We can escape, right? I had many coworkers telling me, oh, just go date some girl, you know, get over her that way. I'm like, well, that's not really appropriate. I don't want to use somebody. <laughs> People are like, oh, well, I would just get drunk every weekend. Again, that doesn't solve the problem, <laughs> right? And these cheap avenues of avoidance are very present in our society. We advertise them. We have how many dating apps? You drive down the street, you watch a game of hockey, how many advertisements of beer? So the call for depth of grace that Jesus is bringing us to is not echoed in our society. It's not often supported, which gives more reason for the value and importance of our church community. The call of grace is immense. And I knew I wanted to get there. But it takes time. Goes through struggles. And I'm hoping that my story, I'm hoping today, not to invoke pity, but to invoke a deep sense of maximum grace. That when you interact with people, that this in the back of your head, it's part of the reason I, can wor- I like working with kids, because I, I know that this in the back, when kids, as a youth worker, throw eggs at me, come after me with knives, I know that there's something behind that, and I need to have enough grace to get to that. And it's life-changing. It's life-giving. It's life-freeing. It's altering. It's blows my mind. It has made me a much better person, and I like the Kevin now. I like the Kevin that sees grace. I like the Kevin that embodies the messiness. And I love coming next to people who are messy, who don't have it together, and to say, yes, you're here, you're seen. And to remember that core tenant, that core need of humans that we have and that we support in the church. We can get caught up in many things. We can get caught up in the performance, in the activities, but it's always that core piece that we have to return to of making sure others are seen, that others are known, and that the worst we have to offer will always, overbecome, always become, overcome by grace. That is a huge call, and it takes practice. I, like I mentioned, I had practice with my Irish boss, Because if I didn't have that practice, I don't know where I would have been. 
So this isn't something I picked up overnight. This isn't something that sparked the day before. But a life of practicing it, of understanding it, of realizing how hard it can be. And this is one story among the many that we have here, the community, beyond, Kelowna, as far as you want to go. We have these moments, but when we put on the face, when we don't want to share, when we don't want to look like we don't have it together, I get that. There's a huge call in society to have your stuff together, to look like you know what you're doing. But we have to break that down. We have to allow the messiness to be seen, the messiness to be felt, and the messiness to be acknowledged. We are not a business. We are a community. I think that is so beautifully shown in the indigenous communities, and that's where I really picked up on that through my studies and learning from indigenous elders, is that when we, when we go for this maximum grace, when we understand, when we, when we try to reach for it, it takes the support of everyone around us. I know my family felt very helpless because they've never gone through this. They're like, we don't know how to help. But they were there. And I found a mentor. Mentorship is such a beautiful thing. We see it in the business world, and we need to bring it back into our community of being honest and open. Because I, I got to the point where I didn't know how to share. Some people would walk away. Some people would be off-put. I even had people, oh, well, now you're single. You can do all the single things you want to do. Well, I wouldn't have gotten married if that was my point. <laughs> right? So it wasn't, it's not solving, it's not silver lining. It's being present. I remember sitting right in the back there when Don Straub was up here like 10 years ago talking about a ser- sermonizing about how to give a good apology. How do you give good apologies? How do you start this process? And of all the sermons I've ever learned, that, that is the one I remember almost word for word. And I think there's a great need to remember the humanness, the connection, the restoringness of relationship. This is where I believe it's really summed up in Galatians 6.2. To carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We're here to support each other. And I'm not saying, I, I went to counseling, there was the professional side of it that I definitely engaged in, but it was the lived reality of those around me that either could have destroyed me, but thankfully uplifted and built me. I wanted to share one last story, if you don't mind. So as a youth worker in Vancouver, um, when I came on to shift, or when, people, when, we, when we came on and off shift, sometimes we spoke outside the house that our youth lived in, so that way he couldn't hear us talking about his day or where things are at, and that way. So I came on to shift, and my coworker's like, oh, Kevin, can I speak to you outside? So I was like, oh, shoot. My youth had a terrible day. What am I walking into? This is the youth that threw an egg at me. It's like, oh, good. What, what's, it, what's today going to bring? And so my head was off on the worst speculations, the, oh, my, oh, oh boy, let's find a piece and let's get through this shift. So we get outside, and he looked at me. He's like, you're divorced, right? It's like, oh, dude, why? No, why are you asking me this? <laughs> he was married with two kids. I was like, no, th- this shouldn't be happening. And so I gave him a hug. That's the only reaction I had. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm so sorry, man. And he's like, you know, of all the people 
I've spoken to, you're the only one that gave me a hug? Well, yeah, I know exactly the issue. I, I, I've been there. It sucks. So we talked about it, and I, I shared my story. That's all I had. We talked about you know, marriage being a covenant, meaning both sides put in, even if the other side doesn't. He talked about how his wife was both you know, falling apart and the, the issues they were facing, that everyone kept telling him to leave the wife. And he's like, but I don't really want to, and you know, that'll be crazy for our kids. Mind you, he was my age, too. And so we met for coffee a few times and just talked, shared our stories. And he went home, asked for forgiveness. She forgave him, he, he forgave her, they went to counseling, and now they're just incredibly happily married. Now they have a life they love, and he's finishing his degree. He wants to become a therapist. And see, that's what Kierkegaard speaks to, and that's what God is calling us, is when we turn the evil into a tool of measuring, of sharing, it builds others up. Right? My story helped save a marriage. My, I, I don't know what more I can offer than that. <laughs> And then after that, I somehow became this magnet of meeting all these other 20-something-year-old divorced people. And our stories uplifted each other, and we were able to persevere. And that's the beauty of it. When, when, we, when we aim for maximum grace, when we convert and inverse the evil into a measuring stick, not only is it health, self-healing, not only does it rely on community, but then it can be used to promote even more good. I have a story that I, I, I like to share because it uplifts so many ways. It has helped so many people. And that's the cycle that we can engage in. That's who we can become. It's where we share stories, where we uplift each other, where we find the mentors, where we become a community that only reaches for maximum grace but lives it and reproduces it and understands it. No, not to forgive and to forget, but to forgive, understand, and to be. Yes, I have some emotional scars and some things that I have to be aware of now because of it, but the tool and the grace I can give, the grace that was given, it's just, it's hard to explain the fullness until you experience, until you give it, until you be it, until you show it. So I'm really excited for the opportunity to share I'm really excited and thankful to be here. I want to leave with the idea of to seek maximum grace by redefining evil as a measuring stick. To see the worst of humanity as a benchmark for the best of who we're called to be. Because we are supported not only by community, but by the Holy Spirit. We have a God on our side that would rather die than be without us. We have a God that forgave beyond measure, who saw the evil in the world and said, I could overcome it, and he did. The, the phrase, pick up your cross and follow me, became so real, but so life-giving. So thank you, and may God keep you, and may you start to cultivate maximum grace as he has shown us over and over again, as he has died for us and given to us. Thanks.